I am not Pastor Derek. And um, my name is Josh, for some of you guys who may not know me. Last time I taught was in, like, a main service was in 2019. It's been a while. Um, and uh, so I have the pleasure of sharing the word with you guys, and I'm excited to do this. I am a little bit under the weather, so please forgive me if I sound weird. There might be a sneeze or two, so forgive me for that. Um, but I am one of the pastors here at the church, and I have the unique pleasure of serving directly under Pastor Derek, and I'm his right-hand guy. Anything he needs done, I get it done, and, um, you know, whether that's, you know, everything that happens on Sundays with the teaching series, there's a lot that happens behind the scenes, and I am, uh, some of my giftings is administration. I'm very administratively minded, and so that kind of stuff may, like details and spreadsheets and lists are boring to people, but to me, it gives me peace. <laughs> to me, I feel ordered, and you know, that's not something that probably a lot of people, you know, think about, but um, I, like, I like a good Excel sheet that's nicely ordered. So, you know, don't laugh at me. It helps you guys. <laughs> so anyways, um, so we'll get into the word. We have, we're in a very uh, tough portion of scripture tonight. And it, you guys may feel we've been in chapter 14 for a while. And we have been in chapter 14 for a while. This is the longest chapter in the book of Mark. Uh, 72 verses. And so I'm taking a chunk of 20 tonight. And... Uh, we're, gonna, we're in Mark 14, uh, verse 32, and we're going to hopefully try to make our way through uh, through all of it. So um, let's begin in prayer, and uh, we'll dive in. Lord, I just thank you so much for um, your grace and your mercy, God. Lord, just grateful, Lord, for what your son did, Lord, not just on the cross, Lord, but in the garden. Lord, as we see, Lord, in the uh, scriptures tonight, Lord, we see, Lord, that you gave us the victory, Lord, in the garden, Lord, and I just pray that if there's anyone here, Lord, who is struggling with different things or holding on to things, Lord, that um, you desired, Lord, for them to, to give to you, specifically surrender to you. God, I pray whatever that thing is, that you would supernaturally give them the, the power, Lord, to know, God, that you have a plan for them and that they would see, Lord, the price that Jesus paid, Lord, to take on our sins. And so, God, I pray that you would just minister, Lord, to the different needs, Lord, that are in this room, Lord, whether they're family needs, personal needs, work um, Lord, whatever it is that's happening, God, I pray that you would minister to those needs tonight. Lord, pray for, Lord, uh, our online audience, Lord, as well, Lord, for them listening. And just pray, Lord, that you would minister to their needs as well. So, God, we love you and pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, often in life, we're faced with situations that are difficult, and we're given opportunities to choose the right thing, whatever that right thing sometimes is in our mind, we think is right, but we fail. We sometimes fail to choose what is right in God's eyes. <clears throat> so tonight, uh, we're going to see how the disciples failed, and, you know, that seems to be a theme throughout the, <clears throat> um, the Gospels, that we see that the Disciples make mistakes. You know, we always make fun of Peter um, for putting his foot in his mouth all the time. And, um, you know, but we get to learn from those mistakes. And tonight we get to have that opportunity to see and to learn. And um, that's my heart. That's my heart as I walk with God. It's, you know, I look at other people. My dad encouraged me um, early on and, you know, as a kid. It's like learn from what I do wrong. And, you know, that's a very 
you know, I think for, you know, anyone to say that about themselves, learn from my mistakes is, a, you know, it's a very humble, you know, thought. But, you know, to that, for that to be instilled in you is to learn from, our mis from each other's mistakes. And that's how we should approach each other, the way we have our relationships. It's not like, let me teach you the right thing to do. It's like, look, let me be transparent and vulnerable and show you how I messed up so that you can see how you can do this the right way. And so we're going to see that tonight. And so we're going to pick up uh, in verse uh, 32. And it says this, I'm reading from the ESV. Um, it says this, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a very uh, familiar portion of scripture for us. And in verse 32, we see the word Gethsemane, which means the olive press. You hear of the garden Gethsemane, it's, um, but it wasn't a garden like you think. It's not like these flowers and, you know, it's not like Disneyland. You walk in and you see these nice arrangements. That's not the garden that we're talking about here. Uh, this was an orchard, uh, an olive orchard. And uh, the Gethsemane is the olive press. And so now they, of course, in the olive orchards would um, have these olive presses where they uh, press the olives, obviously, and they, they uh, uh, abstract the oil from the olives, and that's where we get olive oil. And so that is where Jesus took them. He took them to the place of crushing. And that's not an accident. That's not like, you know, what, what happens there wasn't just, it happens to just line up. But that's exactly where he went because that was going to happen to Jesus. And so in verse 33, it says, began, uh, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And evidently, Jesus, beginning, he's beginning now to feel some of the emotions uh, as he was contemplating the events that were going to take place the next day. And we know what that is. Um, perhaps he began to sob. He began to breathe heavily, very heavy. Uh, he wasn't really his normal self. And the disciples are starting to see that there's something different happening. He's responding differently. And so, like, the disciples probably have never seen him like this. And he confessed to them in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, let's not think that Jesus... Uh, was like this because he was unaware of what situation he was in or that he was a victim of the circumstance or that Jesus just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and he's just stuck now with this thing that's going to happen to him. No, he was willingly laying down his life for you and for me. And I believe it wasn't the torture, believe it or not, that, that made him greatly distressed and troubled and sorrowful. It was taking on the sin of the world. We, I mean, we think, we just think about the, the beating that he was going to endure, the mocking, him being spat at, him enduring the cross, him carrying the cross, him being nailed to the cross, all of that, painful, agony, things that probably none of us would probably ever want to endure, but yet that wasn't what I think he was troubled over. It was the sin that he was going to have to take on and the distance that that was going to create between him and the Father. And that should teach us something, how great our sin is, how great of a distance that sin separates us from God. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Now, I don't know if we understand the severity of what's happening. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. It wasn't just, you know, like we pray, Oh, Lord, God, I just have these things on me. I have these things I want you to take care of. You know, sometimes our prayer life seems a little bit, you know, really even keel and really calm. But here, Jesus is offering up these prayers of loud cries and tears. Has anyone ever been in that place of loud cries and tears? Those prayers I had before I came to the Lord, I had this breaking down moment. I hit rock bottom. I was literally crying out to God, yelling, not at him, but to him, for him to, I don't know, somehow hear me a little bit louder, a little bit more clearer. But it felt good to just get, you know, just have a good cry, you know? You ever had a good cry? Sorry, getting a little too personal about my... (laughs) But it says... Uh, Jesus offered up praise and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And as he was heard because of his reverence, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He was in such agony that he was bleeding from his pores. This is a physical phenomenon called hematridosis. And this is something I learned from Pastor Derek. As I was studying this, I was looking for that, for like, you know, what's this thing? I know that he was so, he was in so much anguish that he was bleeding. And what is that called again? What was that word? And, and I was, as I was studying, it was not something that is commonly found in studies. And so uh, pastor, I asked Pastor Derek, I was like, hey, yo, can you help me with my study? Because uh, what's that word? And I told him what I thought it was. He's like, yeah, that's the word. And, um, but if you want to know a little bit more about like, what that is, talk to Pastor Derek. Uh, he can explain that further to you. But the point is this, is that he was in so much agony. He was, in so, he was so distraught. He was so uh, concerned about the situation that he was not only crying out to God, but he was bleeding from his pores. Like, I've never seen that before, and I don't think I would ever want to see that. But it's just painting the picture of what's happening in the garden. It wasn't just this prayer meeting that we have here at the church, and we get together for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, and we pray for things. If you guys aren't going to the Awaken Tijuana prayer meeting, you guys should go. A little plug there for you. But the, the, the thing with this, with the way he was praying is that he was laboring in prayer. It was painful. And that's, he was preparing himself for what was to come. And verses 35 and 36, it says, in going a little bit farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In verse 36, it says, Abba, Father. Abba is like a child's way of calling for their father. Daddy, really what it means. It signifies a closeness or intimacy between a child and their father. And, you know, for me, I, uh, you know, with my kids, I come home and I put the coat in for the door and they hear it and I hear them from inside the house and they yell from the top, daddy, daddy. They know I'm here. They grab all the stuff from my hands, my lunch pail, my back, my bag, my laptop, whatever's in my hands. And they're just yelling, daddy, daddy, daddy. And it like, whatever my day looked like, Whatever it was that I was going through, just hearing my kids say daddy and calling for me is just this sweet feeling. And it's this closeness, this connection that you have with your kids. You know, anyone who's a parent here, you know what I'm talking about. When they affectionately call you daddy. 
And that's really, that's what Jesus was doing. He was calling out to his father. And here we see Jesus in his most agonizing moment, yet how close he feels to his father and calls out to him in his time of need. When we call out, we too can call out to our Abba Father. We have that access. We can call out to him and plead and ask him in our, in our hour of need. We too can pray Abba Father and address him as such. Now Jesus is requesting to be free from the commitment to the cross because it says here, uh, he said, if it's possible, let this hour pass from me, Father. Now all things are possible with you. Take away this cup from me. Now he isn't saying, take this away from me because, you know, I want, you know, I want, I want to see the, uh, you know, humanity f- fall in their sin and be stuck in their sin. He's not looking for a way out to prevent us from gaining access to him, to God, But he was asking if there's a different way to redeem humanity, if there's a different way, any way possible, other than what I'm about to go through, is it possible? You are the God of the possible. And he just was asking. He wasn't trying to get out of it, but this was heavy stuff. This was heavy stuff that he was about to go through. And sometimes we're prone to take the cross for granted. Because Jesus, when facing it, said in John 12, 27, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. We think, well, you know, he had it all in hand. He had it all together. You know, this was was his job. This is what he was going to do. This is what needed to be fulfilled. So, you know, like Jesus had to do it. You know, we make light of what it was that he did. But it wasn't a slight thing for Jesus. It was heavy for him. And because we see, and we see that the next day, how bravely he faces the whole thing. We are prone to sometimes forget the real battle was waged here in the garden. The reason why he was so strong and brave the next day is because he already gained the victory in the garden. What proceeded after the garden was just him walking in obedience. But the victory was won in the garden. If what hap- if, if what if what didn't take place if the prayer time and what he went through in the garden didn't take place, what, the cross wouldn't have happened. And so what does that teach us? As always in this case, we gain victory through prayer. And here was the real victory shaped for you, for you, and for me. Him praying that agonizing prayer, it shaped yours and my destiny to be in heaven. The real battles are shaped in our prayer closets, not in the battlefields. Sometimes we're so eager to go and to go fix a situation, to go and like, oh, I got to go confront this person. I got to go deal with this. I have to handle this. And we didn't battle at all in prayer. We didn't fight for this in prayer. Sometimes maybe you have a wayward child or a family member that you're just, you're just hitting a wall with every single day. But have you waged war, that battle in prayer? This is a lesson for us to learn from the example of Jesus. All our battles are won in prayer. 
Jesus said in Mark 3, 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And through prayer, we bind the strong man of the house, which is the enemy. And then our service is just going and taking the spoils. This quote I found, it's, well, there's two people that are you know, quoted as saying this, S.D. Gordon and John Bunyan. But it says this, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Wow. I'll say it one more time. You can, do mo- you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. What does this mean? You can't really do any real work or service for God apart from prayer. And here, Jesus is praying to the Father. I believe that at this moment of agony, there in the garden, Jesus is saying, Father, all things are possible for you. Take away this cup. I believe that the Father, at this point, gave him a vision of the glorious day in heaven that was to come. When the redeemed of the earth, you and me, are gathered around the throne of God, and he sees the vision of Revelation 5.8. Revelation 5.8 says this, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then the saints break out in this Glorious song in Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb to take the scroll and loose the seals, for he was slain and he's redeemed by his blood out of every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign with him on earth. I think as Jesus saw that glorious moment in heaven, that glimpse as he's praying, Lord, take this cup from me, He saw the redemption, your redemption, my redemption, complete. And then he continued in his prayer. What does he say in the end, in verse 36? Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And that right there is the key to the whole prayer. Yes, he prayed. Yes, he was agonizing. Yes, he was pouring himself out in prayer. But the key to the whole prayer was that statement, yet not what I will, but what you will. And there he won the victory. At that moment when he said those words, why? Because he was surrendering himself. Surrendering to the will of God. As long as you're finding the will of God for your life, you are destined to be defeated. The more you fight against God, the more that you are, have this thing in your life that you're like, you know what, God, this is not hurting nobody. This is my thing and this is okay. Or, or maybe you know that this thing that you have, whatever it is, is you know that God is telling you to surrender that, to give that up, to walk away from that lifestyle, from the, from the drugs, from this job, from that relationship, from whatever it is that you're doing. He's asking you to surrender that to him today, but you don't want to do it because you want to hold on to it. And until you surrender it, you won't have victory in your life. But the way to victory is by surrendering, by giving up our ways. When you give up your will to God in that moment, you are triumphant. You conquer, and you've come to the path of victory. And Jesus came to the point of surrendering himself to the will of the Father. And now for us, you know, sometimes we pray that prayer. Oh, Father, Lord, if this, this thing that I have, take this away from me. Lord, take this cup from me, whatever that thing is for us. Maybe we approach God in that way where we're praying like, God, take this away. Or, Lord, I want this. 
I want that relationship. I want that job. I want this. I have this desire. And you pray these things. But nothing happens. How much more wiser it would be to complete the prayer at the end, saying, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. If this relationship is not something you want for me, Lord, I want your will more than my will. If this job is something you want me to walk away from, I want your will, not my will. If it's this, this opportunity that in my eyes it looks like the opportunity of a lifetime, but if it's you're not your will, Lord, I don't want it. We can so, so many times be in prayer and approach our prayer life by wanting and sharing what we want and our desires and our needs and what we think is important to us, but we've completely excluded God's will in it. My prayer life changed when it was God's will. And there's still things in my life that I pray for, and as I was studying for this, I was like, okay, Lord, there's things in my life that I haven't been praying against according to your will. So this is for me too. Surrender it. Surrender that situation. Surrender it to God tonight. And if you will just, if you surrender over to the Lord, you will experience victory in your life. Trust me. Trust me. I am evidence of, a, of surrendering. I surrender a lot. And I have much more to surrender. When I was born again, the concept that God taught me, like literally he taught me like the point at that moment when I got saved was surrender. I, I, I learned that right away. I was like, that's the key. Because I wanted to hold on to all these things in my life. I wanted to still have the job or still have this relationship or whatever it was. I still wanted to kind of hold on to these things. But God allowed me to hit rock bottom. And when I hit rock bottom, I was like, you know what, I'm going to leave it all. I'm going to do it. I don't care. And I left it all, and that, what, what the, that encounter, that experience that I had with Jesus on the day that I was saved, I will never trade it again for any other thing, any of those things I ever was fighting for. I was a fool for holding on for so long to those things. And that's what God showed me. He's like, you keep giving those things up to me, your life is going to be full. And so now, we progress. Verse 37 through 41, it says this. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. They were speechless. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Something to note is that Jesus was not irritated with the disciples. He was encouraging them in love because Jesus compassionately understood the struggle. In verse 37, it's interesting that Jesus references to Peter as Simon. You guys catch that? And maybe this was because Jesus was referencing the old man and not the new man that Jesus saw Peter who could be. Our flesh is the old us and the spirit is the new us. And so Peter was asleep and Jesus saw it, and he was like, yo, Simon. He was like, whoa, hold on. That's not my name. That's old me. Well, you acting like old you. Don't go back to that old life. Now, we got to be compassionate. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit yet. But that is, I think, for us to learn that the flesh is our old self, and that's how Peter was addressed in the garden. 
In verse 38, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here Jesus references to a pivotal principle of not letting your flesh dominate you and be dominated by the spirit only. You can learn more about that. You can unpack this in Galatians, the book of Galatians. But here, basically, what he's saying is that the flesh leads to death and the spirit leads to life and to joy. This battle comes up every day in our lives. It wasn't just in the garden where this issue of flesh and spirit battling against each other. We have this battle of our flesh and our spirit every day. Maybe five times a day. I was battling my flesh before this teaching. I was battling my flesh like backstage praying because I wasn't feeling good. Is that a coincidence that I got, like, I got most sick today? You know? I was tempted to like, you know what, Lord? It's okay if I don't like push myself to teach. It's okay. And I'm like, you know what? Considering what we're talking about today and I'm sick, I'm, going, I'm not going to let my flesh get the best of me. But we have this battle constantly. There's probably something right now that you have in your mind that you're battling in your flesh and you're not battling it in the spirit. Whatever that is, like, grab it in your mind. Like, okay, I got it. We'll tuck it away. We'll talk after service. But this battle of the flesh is an everyday battle. When you accept Jesus in your life, you crucify yourself with Jesus and you identify with the cross, which means the flesh and the old man is dead. Don't go back. Don't pick it up. That old man or old woman, I'm not talking about age, I'm talking about spiritual things, so don't get offended. I'm not calling anyone old here. But that old self is gone. Don't go back. But this is what Jesus is preparing himself for the garden. He's preparing himself to take on the sins of the world. But take heart though, we do fail, but the spirit is there to comfort us and correct us. So that what, that, what does that mean? Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. This is an encouragement that Jesus is giving the disciples in the garden to choose to be empowered by the Spirit. So Jesus found them sleeping three times, and in verse 41, it says, He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Now, I read that, and I went through a couple different translations. In the King James, it reads differently. It says this, And he cometh, the third time, and saith unto them, sleep on now and take your rest. It's a little bit different from New King James, ESV, all these other translations. It's different. What it said before, it says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? And the King James, it says, sleep on now and take your rest. Jesus told them to sleep. And while they slept, Jesus kept watch. And this is still true, that while so many people are spiritually asleep, Jesus is keeping watch over us by interceding on our behalf to the Father. This is the heart of this church as well. We desire to see people to become spiritually awakened We don't know for certain, but this whole time in the garden was probably hours. Had to be. But now we shift in verse 41. Jesus heard a commotion of a crowd coming. We're coming. And it says in verse 41, 42, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still asleep and taking your rest? It is enough. There's a, there was some time delay between are you still sleeping and taking your rest? And when he says it is enough, there had to have been some time there. 
but it says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, lest us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The mention of the third return of Jesus to the disciples gives the idea of a conclusiveness and completeness. Their failure in prayer has been complete. The crisis is over and the betrayer is near. In the words of Jesus here, there is no hint of bitterness from Jesus when he says this for the disciples, but there is a world of sadness now. By the hour has come, Jesus means not only that God's time has come, but the matter over which he has been praying for has been settled. It's settled. God's will is settled in this. And God's sovereign will has been revealed because the betrayer is at hand. And so we're going to read verses 43 to 50. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had been given them has had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And he came, he went up to him at, at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left, and they all left him and fled. Notice Judas never called Jesus Lord. He called him Rabbi. The other disciples addressed Jesus as Lord, but never Judas. Not once in the scriptures is it recorded where Jesus, Judas called him Lord. But here is the enigma of like the whole situation where it said, and he kissed him. In the Greek language, there's a couple of words for kiss. There's one that's a friendly peck you put on the forehead of your child. And that is the notion of endearment. But then the Greek language has another word for kiss, which is a passionate kiss of lovers. And it's rather sickening that in the Greek word that is used here, that Judas' kiss was a passionate kiss, betraying him. It wasn't this, like, there, it seemed like there was no shame in what Judas did. He was playing the role, passionately kissing him. How can you passionately kiss someone that you're about to betray, stab in the back? In verse 46 and 47, they grabbed Jesus and it says, one of those who stood by drew his sword and stuck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The name of this person is not in this account, but we know who it was. Right? Who was it? Take a guess. Who? Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. But thankfully, Peter was still sleepy because that's all he got was an ear. He could have got more, but he was still sleepy. But we see from another gospel account as well that Jesus picked up the ear and put it back on and healed it. It's not recorded here, but that's in another gospel. But think about that the heart of Jesus in this moment. What he just endured in the garden, what he knows he's about to endure on the cross, he just got grabbed, arrested, and yet he still chose to serve others. He still chose to heal the, the guard. Hold on, hold on, I know you're after me, but let me take care of you real quick. a lesson that we can learn on how we treat others. Yeah, they rub you the wrong way. 
but that you still serve them. Verses 48 and 49. Jesus marveled that they sent a small army to seize him. He's like, what? Really? But Jesus knew what needed to happen. The scriptures must be fulfilled. Prophecy must be fulfilled. You can't stop it because prophecy has to be fulfilled. Now today, there's a lot of people who just watch the news and watch for like, oh, did you see that? Oh, did you see that? Oh, what happened? What's going on? And it's, it's, you know, it's important. But the lens that we should be looking at current events through is through the lens of fulfilled prophecy. We shouldn't be making the news fit the Bible. The Bible stands on its own and it will speak for itself. But he, of course, was referring to that prophecy that, would, that they would all forsake him, which they did, which we see here in verse 50. And they left him and fled. Who's they that left him? It was the disciples. At this point, all the disciples scattered and ran for their own safety. A few, Peter and John at least, followed back to see what would happen at a distance. Now this is exactly what Jesus said would happen in verse 27 in the same chapter, verse chapter 14. It says, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And the disciples were scattered. Now Mark did not write this gospel from personal recollection or experience because he was only about 12 years old at this time. But Mark became a companion and traveled with Peter and no doubt heard Peter telling over and over uh, you know, the stories from Peter. So there's only one portion of the Gospel of Mark that perhaps is a personal account of Mark as he remembered it. And it's this particular verse that we're about to read in verse 40, 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, in as much as none of the other Gospels record this event of this young man who was following along and was grabbed and fled naked from the garden, most people, scholars, whatever, agree that, Mark is, is, that this is Mark putting his own little part of the story in it. This is like, I was there, I was present, I saw it. But like Pastor Derek shared last week, it was believed that the Seder dinner that took place before was at Mark's mother's house, the, the Last Supper. And so they're having the Last Supper, the disciples and Jesus are at Mark's mom's house, Mark's there, the little boy, and he sees and they go out to the garden and what does Mark do? Grabs a linen cloth, covers himself and starts following them. So Mark was there following along and seeing this. And so he saw some of this for his own eyes because he ran off when the whole scuffle happened. They grabbed Jesus and they're grabbing people and then they grabbed Mark and he's like, ah, he ran off and ran away naked. That's what happened. Um, but now, you know, as I was you know, reading this and studying this, I was like, why was this? Why was that important? Because we know that, you know, Scripture is, you know, divinely written by the Holy Spirit. So there was a reason. And I feel that I, I feel like all the disciples fled with a kind of shameful nakedness themselves. They also fled from the scene in shame. Just how Mark did. I mean, you I mean, he must, it must be pretty shameful to be walk, running away like that. But I think this was also a tie to the disciples of how they fled from the whole situation. Shameful in their nakedness. And so what can we learn from this? We can be critical of the disciples here. It's easy to be critical of the disciples here. 
Their cowardice and failure is documented here for all of us to see. And I always like to learn from others, like I said earlier, especially from people's mistakes. So let's take that opportunity here to learn that. The disciples teach us that we are to remain vigilant in prayer. When faced with a difficult situation, how many times do we faint instead of praying? Jesus demonstrated to us that we gain the victory in prayer. And we are destined for defeat if we lack in prayer. Whenever we feel so weak and overcome by disappointment that we give into actions that we know are not good for us, but seem to be the best we can, we can do given our practical situation, we have fallen asleep just as the disciples did in the garden. Whenever the unfairness of life embitters us, that we cannot resist the urge to give back in kind, anger for anger, pettiness for pettiness, we have fallen asleep, just like the disciples did in the garden. Whenever the complexity of life confuses us so that we no longer feel an obligation to take care of anyone beyond ourselves, but only want to protect ourselves, to hide, and to find a secure place of shelter, we have fallen asleep, like the disciples in the garden. Whenever we feel so overwhelmed by the fact that God seems silent, withdrawn, and unwilling to intervene and clean up the world that we can no longer imagine God in, we have fallen asleep, just like the disciples did in the garden. Whenever we feel like a minority of one, alone, little, and dis despairing before the powers of chaos and darkness, that we believe Christ is no longer the Lord of this world, we fell asleep, just like the disciples did in the garden. And so, I'd like to invite the worship team to come up. And I would, if you want to surrender something tonight, whatever that thing is, I'd like to give you that opportunity tonight. Like I was saying that there's this, we have these struggles, we have these things that maybe we're wrestling with, and maybe the missing piece for us has been surrendering it completely to God. Now, it could be a situation, you could be in this room and you are, you're not even a believer. You don't even identify with Christ. And you have this thing that you just need to surrender. If you have that, whether you're listening online or you're in the room, I want to give you that opportunity. But we're going to do this, if you've been part of this church, you know that we do an invitation to come forward, and I'm not going to call you to do that. If we can have prayer team up in the front. This is your personal garden experience. This is a moment tonight for you to wage war and prayer for the thing that you're struggling with. It doesn't have to be salvation, but it's that thing, whatever it is that you need to surrender to God tonight. You just are burdened. And I don't know what that is, but this is the work that you have to do to come up and to ask for prayer. I'm not gonna acknowledge you. I'm not gonna petition you. This is for you to take this personal time and to come up, ask for prayer, ask for help to surrender, whatever it is that you need to surrender to God so you can walk out of this room, walk out tonight and be victorious in your life have triumph 
in your life tonight. You don't have to wait till Sunday. You don't have to wait for any other day. You don't have to put this off anymore. Whatever it is that you're struggling with and holding on to, come and ask for prayer. And our prayer team will, will walk you through it. But this is your garden moment. You're here at this day, on, at this time, during this message, to be challenged to come and ask for prayer for whatever it was that you're dealing with. So I want to give you the opportunity, but let me pray for you guys. Lord, I just, just grateful, Lord, for your word, for the way you teach us, for the lessons that we can learn if we just pay attention, if we were just to be vigilant. And God, I just pray that we would walk out tonight with a desire to fight our battles more in prayer, to be grateful, Lord, for what it was that you did, not just on the cross, but in the garden, that we would have this gratitude, this thankfulness as a believer, knowing what it is that you truly went through, that we would be reminded of it, that we wouldn't forsake what it was that you did on the cross. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would supernaturally give whoever needs it, whether they're online or in this room, to come forward and to get the help they need to surrender whatever it is that they need to surrender. So Lord, I just, I thank you, Lord. I thank you so much. I can't say that enough for, for saving me, for making a way for me, for making a way for my brothers and sisters here tonight. God, I just thank you so much that you have so thoughtfully loved us in ways that we probably still don't completely comprehend. So Lord, I pray that you would just bring whoever needs to come forward and that they would walk away victorious tonight. We thank you, God, and pray this in your son's name.